Hey folks, Dr. C recorded an episode with our friends over at the Just Buy Less Coffee podcast. Don't worry, I'm okay. We have an open podcasting relationship, he and I, and we, we do a lot of DTRs to make sure he and I are always on the same page. Anyways, they had a fantastic discussion that we thought we'd share with you. But seriously, you don't want to miss it because they talk about everything from academia's communication constipation to the many flavors of Marxists and their feuds with each other to text message essays and a ton more. It's seriously packed with a lot. So sit back, keep two hands on the wheel, take a quick sip of your favorite overpriced hot beverage of choice and enjoy their discussion about your favorite political boogeyman, CRT. All right, joining us now on the program is Dr. Gabriel Cruz, a.k.a. Dr. C. Welcome, Dr. Cruz. Good to see you. Hey, Troy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. Um, so, you know, a big aspect, a big a big talking point that we're seeing on the right these days, and it's so big, it's like people are, are running for office on it. Okay, Glenn, Glenn Youngkin essentially won the governorship of, of Virginia campaigning largely against critical race theory, CRT. Um, a, you know, just totally a made up boogeyman, at least at least as far as I understand it, mm-hmm. uh, in, in K through 12 schools. Um, you know, critical race theory is a graduate level course. Uh, it's not um, it's not even really required, as I understand it, in grad school for a lot of folks. Uh, so it's certainly not being taught in K-12. They might as well be saying that they're teaching quantum physics to, to eight year olds. Um, it's just not happening. But for some reason, this plays into these this sort of like white fragility, um, you know, uh, ongoing sort of uh, racism that we have in this country, um, now inventing sort of racial boogeymen uh, for white parents to be afraid of their children being taught sort of, um, uh, you know, anything that could um, make them look bad, essentially. Uh, but it's also sort of a... Um, you know, a, a way to scapegoat teachers, a way to, to, to keep teachers in lockstep. Teachers are now, and I know Kathy can speak to this, teachers are now just terrified of teaching anything that has to do with race because it might fall under, they might say it falls under CRT, even though it has nothing to do with CRT. So I'm wondering if you could, um, given your, your background and your expertise, I'm wondering if you could give us a little background on what critical race theory is, uh, actually is, and, um, you know, uh, why it's not taught in K-12 and maybe it should be, I don't know. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe that's where we should be going with this. Sure. Yeah. So absolutely. Um, just a little bit of a disclaimer for anyone who, and I wouldn't expect anyone to know who I am, but, um, I'm a university lecturer. I teach classes in pop culture, communication studies, that kind of thing. And my research background primarily is critical race studies in media, specifically superhero narratives, comic books, TV shows, adaptations, that kind of thing, and that's awesome. a, <laughs> which is great. It, I tell my students, I get to read comics, watch Netflix, write about it and go to conferences to talk about it, which is a sweet gig. It beats hauling shingles up a ladder, which is what I was doing before I was a teacher. Um, the other thing, my secondary area of, uh, of research is white nationalist rhetoric. And the two intersect here. Actually, those things combine more often than I'm comfortable with, if I'm being honest. But uh, go, I say that to say this. Um, the thing about critical race theory is that it is, it's been around since the 1980s. Uh, it was an offshoot of critical labor studies. And in fact, there's an awesome podcast called Intersectionality Matters done by uh, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who is one of the foundational scholars for critical race theory. And I was recently listening to her talk about how critical legal studies, which was primarily concerned about labor, gave some real pushback to critical race theory because it was mostly white dudes who were not concerned about the matter of race. That being said, it is a it originated as a complex legal theory. 
that has evolved over time since uh, the 1980s into different areas of um, interdisciplinary study. So like education uses it quite a bit when it's looking at how do policies, practices, uh, and those sort of things create racial disparities when it comes to education, our school systems, that kind of thing, which is also something that um, a lot of folks that are more savvy to like how critical race theory can be applied are afraid of because adjusting those policies, practices, outcomes would would create a degree of equity uh, across the board, which does not work in their interest in many ways. Um, and in my area of communication studies and mass media in particular, we look at critical race theory from the perspective of how does language and our mass mediated society recreate perspectives that facilitate disparity, right? So as the saying goes, news doesn't tell you what to think, but it does tell you what to think about. And so looking at how they frame things on TV, whether it's in fictional narratives or in terms of uh, mass mediated news, um, it can create mindsets that we then take to the voting uh, box, right? That we then use to enact public policies and that kind of thing. Um, and it is a college level class. It is a graduate level class. I touch on critical race theory a little bit in all of my classes, but really just enough to get my students like toes wet in the area. You can't teach it reasonably at the K-12 level because that requires, before you even get into critical race theory, you have to get into things like uh, social constructionism and the idea of society as being existent uh, based off of interaction, which is a thing for anyone to have to grapple with, right? Mm -hmm. um, I tell my students, I said, you know, what the Constitution and the Kardashians have in common is that their power is socially based. Uh, <laughs> And actually, I got a, uh, I did that on on a TikTok and on Instagram one time, and I got an Instagram message from some nice young man who was inquiring, you do know the difference between the Constitution and the Kardashians, right? <sighs> yeah, kid. Yeah, I do. Um, thanks for checking in, though. I appreciate it. You old guy. <laughs> right, right. I swear to God, the things they miss, you know? <laughs> He's like, I just want to make sure you know the difference between, like, the Kardashians and the most powerful document in our his country's history is like i'm i'm passingly aware of both of them um throw away all the degrees start over right <laughs> so so you have to get past this idea of um because critical race theory is based on the perspective that our laws facilitate and create and um and maintain racial disparities and to get before you even get to that you have to get to the idea of what is a racial disparity why do we have the concept of race? Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that our societies do not exist out of thin air, that they are the result of uh, communal practices and interacting power relations and all of that before you even get to the idea of critical race theory. So it's, it's wild to me that anyone thinks that we would be teaching this at the K-12 level, like it's a boogeyman kind of thing. It's mm -hmm. hard enough to have discussions about race with young people. If not mm -hmm. for those who already are familiar with the, the real life implications of racism, then for those who have to begin to conceptualize something that up until that point, they were blissfully unaware of, right? Um, Dr. Ibram Kendi talks about this idea of like racial puberty. Right, yeah. that we all go through at different points in life, and the the darker you are, the earlier it happens. Mm -hmm. um, and so, to create that, to, to for, some people, for some white people, it never happens. That's true. Some <laughs> people are late bloomers. Some people never bloom, unfortunately. Uh, um, so yeah, it's uh, it's wild, but it also it hinges on on some things like, you know, like I said, critical race theory has been around since the nineteen eighties at least, um, and critical always scares people because when yeah. people 
people use critical to mean like, oh, like we're critiquing things, which is part of it. But then when they find out that it has connections to like the critical school of thought, which dates back to the 1920s and the Frankfurt School and the Frankfurt Schools were neo-Marxists, which yeah. is always it always tickles me when people are like, well, this is Marxist theory. It's like, well, hold on a second. Um, the Marxists didn't like Marx. The neo-Marxists <laughs> hated Marx. Um, there's a <laughs> the Marxists ain't been Marxist since Marx has been Marxism. I mean, saying you know, <laughs> and that sentence makes about as much sense as their stream of stream of thinking. I think that's um, our next T-shirt slogan. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a reason that like the guys in the Frankfurt School called the original Marxists the vulgar Marxists. Like mm. it was not a a a. a, a, a term of endearment um and so that's part of the boogeyman right and then there's yeah. the other aspect of race and one of the one of the i like it it's like a hangover from the civil rights era of the 60s into the 70s of okay we just won't talk about it anymore right we're so tired of discussing race we're just not going to talk about it and that's the thing to do mm -hmm. and so it becomes one of those things that like politics sex religion money any of those other things that we just don't discuss uh, as part of our cultural norms, the idea that we would then take one of those taboo subjects and make it the head of a theory is frightening to people, right? Yeah. And of course, no one knows what a theory is um, <laughs> at all. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, so. they don't know what they don't know what a theory is. They don't know what critical means. They don't really know what what, what race is. So it's they like, couldn't get the, pick the difference between a capital T and a lower T theory and realize mm -hmm. that those are completely different things. And this is a capital T theory, which functions differently than a lowercase theory. Absolutely. Well, and especially because we have such a, I wouldn't even say like a value on STEM because we don't value STEM. Quite honestly, we, uh, we value the flashy things about science and that's about it instead yeah, of like actual good STEM. That's what we do. Yeah. No, and dollars, that's what we do. I heard someone say, it's not, you don't like science. You like looking at science's ass as it walks by, <laughs> like, which I, which is how I feel about how when it comes to this kind of language, right? I and love that way too much. <laughs> I think that came from a Cyanide and Happiness comic, I want to say. That would make a lot of sense, though. Yeah. Um, but that's the thing is, like, to, to Irene's point about, like, theory, like, in, in the hard sciences, a theory is right basically every time, right? With rare exception and, like, one in a million opportunities, right? That kind of thing. But it's typically true all the time. Um, in the human in the social sciences, in the humanities, our theories aren't like that because, one, at the very least, rocks don't have free will, but humans do. And, rock, and, and therefore, rocks make more sense than humans do quite often. Humans do stupid stuff all the time. So it's hard to predict. It's hard to have that consistency. Um, and then, of course, you know, like was just pointed out, it's the lower lowercase t versus the capital case t of, you know, oh, it's just a theory. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, it's 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 so complex. But the you know the 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 um the concept of race itself is is complex, and I think we're there are people move through these concepts at, at different phases, and and you know. It's it's hard to be patient with folks that are kind of still living in. There's a lot of folks that are just kind of catching up to the, um, you know, I'm colorblind. I don't see I don't see race. They're sort of they're sort of moving into that era, and they think that that equals I'm not a racist. Um, we've kind of moved on from that, and you know, we're we're recognizing that you know that's not that's not the way to go. Um, the 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 way to go is not to deny who we are as people and just assume that we're all just a gray mush, but to recognize, um, you know, the historical struggles of people of color, um, 
throughout history. At the same time, understanding the origins of race and that race is a social construct and that, you know, um, it's it's impossible to be to be racist against white folks, which just blows blows people's mind. And I, I just think that people aren't um, they just aren't there yet with that level. But, you know, that being said, um, I think they're using this. I know they're using this just as um, a way to scapegoat any kind of diversity training, um, any kind of just mention of race. Uh, and I, I, Kathy, I wonder if you can give us your perspective on that. But like any, um, you know, they don't know what it is, so they can call it anything they want. If you talk, if you talk about slavery, it could be CRT. If you talk about Jim Crow, it could be CRT. Uh, if you talk about Black Lives Matter, it could be CRT. It's it's a it's a very typical, almost um, fascist tactic to just uh, you know hamstring educators and education in this country. And it, frankly, it scares the hell out of me. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is kind of where like all the generation stuff I talk about kind of crosses these two bridges, right? Like the way, the where or the location in their brain, I guess, um, in their developmental understanding of these kind of social constructs is sort of like they all stopped reading at a certain chapter of a book that kept getting written, right? And each generation is sort of like, once they understood it for their socially acceptable time frame, that kind of imprints on their personality, that is what they take with them and what they think is right because that's what they understand. And it's that narcissistic, like my understanding of the world is how the world works. I explain it to the kids like I'm terrible at giving people directions because I assume everyone knows where they're supposed to turn. So it's like, wait, you were supposed to turn there? Like, and that's how everybody functions in society, right? <laughs> um, so that when you kind of parallel it to just the way academia and science work is that they're constantly evolving, right? We don't stop reading there, right? Everybody else goes off and lives their lives like normal people. And we stay in the library, like little bookish nerds reading all of the pages and writing the rest of the story, but you stopped reading it. And now we don't understand each other because we're not speaking the same language anymore. It's why like when I start teaching economics to the kids, I harp on vocabulary so bad. I'm like, look, economics is easy, but it will sound like I'm speaking Latin. So here are a lot of words that you need to learn. So when I say things, you know what I'm saying. Because other than that, it's if I give you this, you'll give me that, basically, <laughs> right? Like it's stickers on a playground at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, if we could all speak the same language, if we all knew what we were saying, then that would work. And Irene's doing that thing. Yeah, she Irene's doing the hand raising. Oh, she knows the teacher triggers. <laughs> I love raising my hand when there's a teacher present because it just means then I actually can like jump in once they finish. It, like, it's been instantaneous. Like, I, and obviously I'm going to carry right to Irene. <laughs> well, I think another thing we need to keep in mind too is the role that textbooks play in all of this and what we're allowed to teach in the classroom. And the history of textbook laws, especially in the South, is so complex because some, for so long it was backed explicitly by the Daughters of the Confederacy. And there are laws around mm -hmm. how you could teach the Civil War. And people are very uncomfortable with the idea that history is a revisionist field. History is consistently driven towards revising how we looked at the past and using modern research in other fields to do interdisciplinary research to better understand how the past actually functioned. And so people have a conception of, well, if this was in my textbook when I was growing up and it's no longer in the textbooks, then that means you guys are now teaching lies because this was 
true history. And the fact that one of the things the Daughters of Confederacy really emphasized in their textbook writing, especially in the 1920s through 1960s, was correct history. And the idea of correct history as their specific interpretation of the events that took place. And so that narrative has trickled down through generations to create intergenerational racism that plays into a lack of trust for specifically historical writing, which then impacts all this critical race theory idea because there's no longer a trust for academia. Mm -hmm. And what, what baffles me is that uh, I, I think, and what I'm seeing, you know, folks talk about it, it's, you know, curriculum in public schools is not a secret, <laughs> you know, like you, you can look up what, what the curriculum is. It's not like you, your, your, your um, teachers are going to be teaching something that you, that you're not aware of, yeah, but I think they're so convinced that there's like some secret, like, secret curriculum that isn't out. I don't know. They just, I, you know, if you're, that's why I ask people, you know, when they're like, Oh, CRT is being taught in school. I'm like, okay, show me the syllabus for the CRT class. Like you're not, you know, you're not gonna, it's not going to be secretly taught to your kids. And, and you know, I find it a little um, baffling that the kids wouldn't come home and be like, I learned CRT today. Um, but again, I, I, I think people don't know that they have, like you were saying, Irene, they have such a distrust of history, such a distrust of education, such a distrust of, of teachers um, that they are convinced that the teachers are all in lockstep on some sort of secret, um, you know, indoctrination mission. We've talked about this before. Like it's all Kathy can do to get her, get her kids to sit down and shut up. Like Kathy's not indoctrinating anybody. With it's well, just I carry a gallery around though, so I am apparently scary. Like everyone's scared of me until they meet me. It's a thing. But um, I'm still scared of you. It's <laughs> it's it's that kind of it goes back to my generational thing, right? Like if you think about the evolution of how schools have interacted with students, just how curriculum has sort of evolved and like, oh, I sound like such a nerd, like teacher pedagogies as they apply to the classroom dynamic. Oh, there it is. Like you can tell I went, to, oh, I try to hide it, but it's there. God, I hate me. But <laughs> that has kind of changed. So like when the parents of the kids today were in school, it was that kind of authoritarian teacher style, like come in, sit down, do as you're told, like turning your assignments, wrote kind of like, you know, take the test, turn it in. Like standardized tests have evolved over time as well because now the classroom dynamic is everybody work together to get the test grade that we need to make the school better, which I think inadvertently turns them all into socialists because collective mindset for the greater good, you know, and like, so oops, you created your own monster there, guys, but that's a conversation for there. But it's because the parents of these kids had this kind of like, you're supposed to be the hard ass teacher putting my kid in line the way the teachers did for me, at the same time, they resent those teachers who did that to them. So they come into the classroom with that helicopter parent hostility, like, how dare you not be raising my child for me, while also being there to comfort them emotionally for the damage I'm doing to them, right? Like, I cannot play both roles, you know, while simultaneously getting them to give a single fuck about macroeconomics, because that's not easy to make a 17-year-old care about. So... It's, it's the vilification of public service, the kind of personal resentment of like a personal teacher in your brain. Like they're not talking to me is what I figured out. All those angry parents are talking to that bitch English teacher. Right? Like that's who I am to them. And all of that hostility is coming out. And it's this weird broken social dynamic and I don't really know how to fix it, but Irene raised her hand. So I'm gonna let her figure it out for me. Irene knows how to fix it. I know, she knows how to do everything. 
I think there's also some explicit cognitive dissonance that they even recognize in their dialogue. One of my favorite phrases that we hear a lot on TikTok um, is like people talking about in academia, how you have to like write to the liberal bias and how academia has a liberal bias and reality has a liberal bias, which is really just an acknowledgement that your perspective does not function when held up to academic standards. Yeah. And it's it's well, pure cognitive dissonance because you have to expect the fact and ex and accept that there's going to be dissonance between everything you're learning and everything you believe because the belief is so foundational for your ability to function within your worldview and within your community and so it really is like sometimes i feel like conservative spaces are like the truman show where everyone else is just watching from the outside but every individual inside is really not sure if they're truman or if they're an extra because they're all playing the same role they're all in a system that only functions within itself yeah, Gabe I'm, Gabe, I'm wondering what your thoughts on this at, you know, at the college level and how, um, how's your, how's, how's the indoctrination of your, of your students going to, to um, ideology? Yeah, you know, we, every day I just, we, we come this much closer to just making them all into Marxists. Um, <laughs> no, it's, right? <laughs> well, you know, what's funny about that though, uh, to Irene's point before I uh, continue is, um, so I was raised by conservative parents who raised me on NPR, PBS, and told me that science was real. And like, and that and that you had to know why you believed a thing before you could believe it and that that is no that that is apparently that is i feel like the treatment show in that regard because once i got beyond the bubble and it's like oh wait a minute these folks are completely okay with being detached from reality and the and sometimes that shows up in like the way that these students try to articulate themselves and not i mean that as a slight but because to the point about like, oh, we try to pander to, they try to pander to like liberal doctrines or whatever they think their professors believe, which most of them don't understand we're playing devil's advocates half the time, right? Most of the time we're just being productive agitators. The, the, these are not necessarily our spouse beliefs. Um, yeah, with the social equivalent of the middle child. Like, wait, I know both sides. Yeah. Well, yeah. my interpretation, no, nobody cares, got it. Like, that's who we are. I learned from a community college professor. My job is not to give you answers. My job is to make you uncomfortable and frustrated. Um, that is so, but anyway, going back to this thing about like, um, I teach a comic studies class with freshmen. I can't get them to do all the reading. I can't get them to read the, I, on Thursdays, we read comics. That is the assignment. You read a comic, you come to class and I can't even get them to do that consistently. So like, I'm no. Cartoons. Watch a cartoon yeah. and answer six questions. Wait, can I just copy it? I hate you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and so there's that kind of, that kind of frustration, but going back to, to Troy's point about like this idea of like a secret uh, doctrine or agenda or whatever, I wish George Soros was paying me <laughs> to do this stuff. I got student loan debt. I seriously, we would not have debt if this conspiracy were true. Yeah, or exactly. Not? with money and that we would gotta, be I gotta get you the, the right contact info. Oh, wait a minute. Sure. Bucks. I've been doing this for love of the game. You mean I can get paid? Like, <laughs> like oh um, shit, I got out of line somewhere. <laughs> but so who was the um the uh, Troy you mentioned earlier, the fellow who won the election in Virginia? Mm -hmm. Youngkin. Youngkin. Who did he, he beat? McAuliffe? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, because so part of the problem, one of the things that I had I believe sort of worked against um, McAuliffe and played the Youngkin's favor and has been a part of this whole discourse of, of CRT is that there were some PowerPoint slides, I think, that were leaked out, right? Mm -hmm. That talked about critical race theory, but from a perspective of trying to help educators understand the idea of racial disparity, but that alone existing. And of course, with all the stuff that like, uh, what's his name? Oh, Christopher Russo, Rufo, the, the guy who's behind all this, um, boogeyman terminology um you know 
latched onto that and then it sort of runs wild. And this has been the case with a couple different school systems where they have had discussions about critical race theory as part of their training for their teachers. Not that the teachers would, one, become experts in it, or two, um, actually teach this kind of stuff, but that they should be cognizant about things. And right. this also goes back to the idea of when we talk about like uh, what does racism mean? Um, I tell my students we are often concerned about racism from an individual perspective, and that is important, but that is not what things like critical race theory are concerned about. That is not what I am concerned about as a uh, scholar of race or anything like that. I said, look at it like this. Pandemic happens, right? Um, students go home. They are, are sent home, and if they have technology, that's great. If they don't, they're screwed. Right. Their ability to do work based on whether or not they have access to reasonable technology or a good Internet connection is very much, you know, factored into that. And of course, because access to technology tracks with poverty, uh, it tracks with uh, income level and wealth, which also tracks with race. We understand then that if I have a bunch of students who come to me and say, hey, Dr. Cruz, I can't turn my work because I don't have a laptop. Or I don't have a good Internet connection and I don't accept their work because for whatever reason I don't, then I have to accept that whether or not I am a prejudiced person, I am recreating racist outcomes because those students are going to be right. disproportionately people of color, which is why I had colleagues who were accepting essays via text message because you do what you got to do to help these kids get through in these in such a difficult situation. So whether or not I'm a bigot has nothing to do with the fact that I can reproduce racist outcomes uh, just by adhering to whatever policies or practices are already in place. Yeah. Um, both ladies have their hands up at the moment. But yeah, just quickly on that. Um, I was on a, a, a Troy trivia. I was a member of a school board in a, in a small rural community. Um, and we guaranteed Chrome, you know, the, at the start mm -hmm. of the pandemic, we guaranteed Chromebooks to every student. Um, and the idea that school districts would not do that. You know, some of these in like big cities that had, you know, you know, um, much more resources than we had. The idea that we would send kids home without the proper technology to, to do this kind of thing is just, is just absolutely astounding to me. Well, but, on uh, that note, like the school I work at, I'm not going to name it, but I'm going to allude to it. Um, when I started there like 10 years ago, we were one of the pilot schools that introduced 100% uh, digital integration into the schools. Like we gave every student on campus a MacBook, right? They like, were testing different devices at each school. Um, so our kids got MacBooks. And that was meaningful because I teach at a majority minority school in a pretty little um, racially tense corner of Orange County, okay? Like West Orange County, Florida is where we're talking here. So we gave a bunch of like, we're just on the like line of Title I back then, like a D school, I think at the time. And we handed every kid in the school a MacBook and they thought, look, we're putting like a level playing field. These kids did not have a clue how to use the MacBook, right? Because what little experience they had on computers with, was with PCs at the library. So they have to learn an entirely new system. And then they're like, well, the kids grew up with technology. They should be able to do this. No, because they didn't learn how to use Word, like you know, Microsoft Word and Excel. They've been dicking around on social media and YouTube, right? Which is why they can fact check me in real time time, but they can't format a document, right? And uh, just to other another point before I let Irene talk, because I feel bad, but to Gabe's point, like, I, that's why my grading policy is the way it is. I'm kind of a pariah at my school with other teachers, I think, because my grading policy is I'm here to teach you government and economics, and we have like nine week grading periods. I will give you assignments, and if you turn them into me before the report card, I will grade them. 
period, no late policy. Like I'll be grading units one through three at the same time because it's my job to teach them economics. It's not my job to teach them in an 11 day time cycle that right. maybe this curriculum guide came up with based on an average student. These are not average students. These are a majority minority population. They work so many jobs. They do so many curricular like things to pad their resume to go to mm -hmm. college because a lot of them are first generation college kids. So right. will I do whatever I, it takes? Yeah, because if you do an A's worth of work, I will give you an A grade. And if you work together with your friends and share your vocabulary words, I'm going to let you do that because in real life, that's called collaboration, not copying. And your teachers really should lay the fuck off you. And that is what I do. So why do I have 20 A's in macroeconomics? Because they work like hell to do it, but they got it to me by the report card and I took it. Okay. Ahead, All right. Irene. <laughs> Hi, guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hi, One of the interesting aspects of all this, of course, is like how education functions in the state. And I, I lived in South Carolina when I was in high school and I went to university in South Carolina. One of the fascinating things about South Carolina specifically is in South Carolina, if you get a certain grade in college in the education program or like for one of the scholarships, you have to teach in state for two years. And most of those students, um, because they qualify for the scholarship, and it's almost a full ride, I believe, they then teach in-state for two years at Title I schools for two years. And then it's like a thing where, oh, I have now earned my way out of Title I and then go somewhere else. And then you combine with the fact that South Carolina is a high poverty rate, one of the lowest ranks in education. And they lost 17,000 students when COVID started, like untraceable, able, unable to contact them because they removed her learning because of how poor some of those school districts are, how limited the resources are. They just couldn't find the students. They couldn't continue learning in any way. But then also with food insecurity in the state, which is intersectional to all of us when it comes to education, these students are then also losing access to consistent food. And it's one of those things where, okay, do we need to teach CRT in school? Well, CRT is not gonna be taught in the classroom. It's gonna be taught to the educators so they can recognize the way that all these things are playing a part on the impacts of their students and making their students' lives more difficult implicitly or explicitly because the students don't have the words for these things. They don't have the language to talk about their experiences, especially in elementary school. But if your teacher understands what potentially could be happening in the classroom, then they can assist you in ways that otherwise they wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Quick note on that too, um, <laughs> the the whole like, you know, teachers being prepped thing when I was on the school board, um, it got leaked. This like such sex education book got leaked that had all these like incredibly graphic things in them, but it was for the teachers to like recognize if the, if the students were engaging in like dangerous practices, but that got out to the parents and they were thoroughly convinced that like they were teaching like just gnarly S and M shit to the kids in sex ed. Yeah, so, yeah, we, had, we had to deal with that for a few weeks. I can't imagine my sex ed teacher saying, "All right, kids, and this is a ball gag." Oh and BDSM one hundred and one. <laughs> let's go. Right. Like the difference no. between professional development and curriculum guidelines are lost on these people, right? Because to me, like a CRT professional development for teachers determines what classroom supplies they pick right? Like why I might have to buy more like tissues and hand sanitizer and let the kids take the gum off my desk or have snacks in my drawer. Like those are legitimate classroom supplies to me that probably are not necessary to another teacher that could probably buy fancy batteries for kids calculators when their calculators run out of like that's what it comes down to. It's not what we teach the kids. It's how we treat the kids. Mm -hmm. I am and so I angry that I have to use a TI-83. <laughs> I swear to God. Yeah. Oh boy. So yeah. So yeah. You know. Yeah. It's it's a it's a challenging time.
Um, Gabe, you're a, you're a uh, graphic novel guy, you know. Allegedly, yes. Allegedly, yeah. <laughs> what's uh, what's your favorite? What's your favorite series or graphic novel? Or um, you know, give us a little, give us a little, oh, geez. Uh, a little um, insider tip there. So I, I, my favorite is anything I can read without analyzing it, which is damn near impossible. Um, <laughs> the last movie I was able to actually lose myself in was Mad Max Fury Road. Um, so everything else I have to just take apart. But uh, that's because I was just going everywhere. Like every time you're watching a TV show, it's like notebooks and post its. Like that it, reminds me. No. Are. <laughs> literally i went to go so the drive-in at my um my local drive-in opened up and i went with my brother and sister who are 19 and we walked to go see the batman and it was great i loved it but my brain also would not shut off <laughs> um i walked out and i was just like well all that was was blah blah, blah. well and, and 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 at the risk of giving this is i think a very mild detail to give but there's a point where they reference a particular person having 500 social media followers and my brother and sister are like 500 what's that and i'm thinking well first of all children to some of us that's a lot second <laughs> but second in the context of what they were discussing which was like domestic terrorism like that's a lot of people right and so my brain starts spiraling about things like January 6th and the because they could trace most of the web footprint to like a half dozen people who helped coordinate that whole thing. It was absolutely wild. Anyway, back to graphic novels. Um, currently, I'm reading Swamp Thing, uh, hmm. <laughs> um, the uh, the Alan Moore run. Uh, yeah. And I recently just got um, DC Unlimited. So I'm reading Constantine, which is one of my favorite. He's the only he's he is almost the entire reason I mess with DC at all. But I'm excited for stuff like the got Moon Knight coming out soon. Uh, so I've been revisiting some of those old comics. Um, so, yeah, I I love this stuff because as a friend of mine likes to put it, um, I got a buddy who teaches up at Michigan State University who is a uh, comic book urban historian who argues. And I entirely agree that comic books are imprints of their time. They are historical documents, mm-hmm. um, not in the sense of what is real but in the sense of what is true so like going back to now um actually i was just listening to uh i think it was episode three of y'all's podcast where troy you were talking about the swing from like un uh, unregulated neoliberal capitalism to like you know uh, more socialist programming and things like that and the infrastructure and the back and forth um and i you know was talking to my class today about how you know we are Superman is great, not just because of who he is and Clark Kent and all that kind of stuff, but because he, his first villains were corporatists. His first (laughs) villains were industrialists. Captain America's Mm -hmm. first villains were Nazis, but they were Americans who were Nazi sympathizers who were also industrialists. Mm -hmm. And they were addressing these things that are still relevant at this time. And that have unfortunately become maybe a little more relevant things like corrupt defense contractors. Um, uh, housing slumlords and you know mining bosses that were you know exploiting the labor and things like that and so i love these as these comics as ongoing discourses mm-hmm. about what's happening in society because sure it comes from one person and that is obviously filtered through like the the corporate guidelines that kind of stuff and marvel and dc have their politics which are what they are but that they resonate so much with people absolutely speaks to the phenomenon of the day that mm-hmm. makes any sense so. yeah Totally. I love that. Yeah, because um, I always like think it's like pop culture that drives like the generational like collective idea, you know, mm-hmm. and that is um, the, those ideas that imprint on you are mm-hmm. kind of the legacy of your generation that teaches the people after you. That's my alarm going off. I'm an asshole. What to have kind of learned. Like, you know, we all kind of stop learning at a certain point, but mm-hmm. we leave a mantle for someone. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of things that 
help people pick up the mantle in a language they understand. It's also really helpful for teaching students about things that they didn't know about. And um, Irene, your comment in the chat about VeggieTales is blowing my mind. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. What? Processing it, I was like, I couldn't do that in real time. (laughs) So I'm in one of my calm theory classes. We had to do something about like religious storytelling, and they're like, okay, like, and so I led the presentation. I was like, I have to pull a VeggieTales example. Obviously, everyone's gonna think it's funny. And I was watching. There's like the Radshack, Meshack, and a Bendigo episode with the chocolate bunny, and the entire thing is about. Like the the main song is literally we work eight to five, no lunch till three. The the like main character is like two minutes late to work and is going to get reprimanded for it. We get no breaks, we're overworked, we're underpaid, and it's like the industrial complex. And then you look at like the Jericho episode, and it's all about authoritarianism and authority as authoritarianism is of course the French peas. And there's like all this underlying like revolution aspect, and I was very fascinated. <laughs> If that happened now, it would be slammed. It would be described as like anti-Amazon slander. Um. <laughs> so Veggie Tales fueled the deconstruction movement. Is that what you're saying? Like inadvertently, these 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 vegetables created a revolution. I love that. So, I am a leftist because Veggie of Tales. Veggie Tales. <laughs> I, I literally told one of the pre-sem friends with on TikTok. I said, "Will you please do a series for me where you just take Veggie Tales episodes and critique them theologically, and then put them in political spectrum?" And he's like, oh "I'll start. I'll start now." That is what I've been trying to say that needs to be done to like like social so- sciences curriculum, right? Like there are so many television shows, historicals, like series that you could build lesson plans around. And the fact that you want me to do it proves my point. I'm just okay. I'll stop uh, rant. No, th- this is and this actually dovetails back to something that um, that Kathy you brought up earlier, and that is that no one at this level of no one who's in higher education is not a nerd except for maybe the coaches, maybe they're the outliers, but everyone else is a huge friggin' nerd. Um, the kind of people who probably carried around like a, a Dungeons and Dragons dungeon master manual because it was our comfort blanket or something along those lines. Right. Um, but we're bad at PR. We are terrible about communicating to the outside world, which is why I do TikToks like uh, that. And because I get some weird catharsis out of screaming into the void. Um, that is why I do it entirely. <laughs> that's, that's how we all start. Yeah. Yeah. So, but because academia uh, is, is so bad at articulating itself in an accessible way, that's also why I love comics. Um, I teach a class on propaganda where I, my students read, they called us enemy, which uh, for those listening who may not be familiar, they called us enemy is the graphic novel adaptation of George Takei's account of being in the uh, Japanese internment camps. And I had a student who had never heard of the Japanese internment camps in a college level honors class. Like it was just, these were, these were smart kids. They came from, you know, schools with resources, that kind of thing. And a handful of them in this class of 20 had just never heard of this phenomenon. And they were like, wow, this is terrible. Um, and yeah, I was like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you kids. Like, I'm sorry that you're finding out about, out about it this way. Uh, but it is what it is. Um, I brought that up because like, it's the things we don't know. It's not that they're stupid. It's not that they aren't capable of learning it. It's just that they haven't been taught it. And part of it is intentional. And part of it is that there's just a lot of history to teach and kids only retain the parts that, you know, grab them in the moment. They're still teenagers. Like they, they could have covered that. Right. But they missed that day. They broke up with their boyfriend, but Irene raised her hand and my, my brain stopped because God, you're I think one of the hard parts too about like history specifically is you hear often like the why wasn't I taught this in school and it's difficult because keyword searching and historical research is confirmation bias until you know how to search the right words together and it's 
confirmation bias for many pages before you actually get to the things that you're looking for. Um, and I think historical graphic novels are a really great way for people to actually get a access into the human aspects of history. Um, in classes that I've taken, we've done like Boxers and Saints, Jerusalem and Persepolis, which are all revolution based, but they do a great job of positioning all of it in the life of a child growing up in family dynamics where people don't agree on what the revolution looks like because people forget that these are not homogenous movements. People do not all agree on it and families will disagree mm -hmm. on it. And how does this actually play out when it involves people who are around your age? And so it's always fascinating how people will like cherry pick the things they don't know, but you can only find what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. That sort of uh, relates back to this thing about um, critical race theory, and I get frustrated when I hear folks rather flippantly say on social media, well, you can just Google it. Mm -mm. Google is a great search engine for finding misinformation. Yeah, um, Google it is like you can just listen to the drunk guy on the bus. Right? Mm -hmm. you, yeah, why not? Because you can vet him about as effectively as most of us can vet you know, the yeah, stuff like we find online. An internet search history class, the way they taught us the Dewey Decimal System, we need to teach kids how to Google because yeah. there's a way to do it, but they're not doing it. They're doing it. <laughs> No, you're you're absolutely right. And the um part of the the frustration is that when students, you know, when they go about trying to do their own research, that kind of thing, that's why I teach my students how to do research, they are woefully underprepared for evaluating sources. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when you combine that with something like critical race theory, which I describe it to anyone who doesn't know about it as the idea that race is a social construct that has material consequences. And that's an easy way of remembering it. But that doesn't tell you anything about how it was developed. That doesn't tell you anything about how it's used. It doesn't tell you anything about the mechanics of it or the philosophies that under that sort of uh, underline or, or undergird this theoretical approach and expecting anyone to take the time when you have to be worried about you got to pick your kid up from school you got to work a job you got to cook supper that you know whole annoying we have to you know eat three times a day and also sleep for at least five hours or something like that right which is a day adhd does not well um so <laughs> so yeah it's like there's so much going on in the world it is unreasonable and I, it's not too far to say that this is by design. It's not unreasonable to expect people. It is unreasonable to expect people to do that kind of work, right? Because I'm a I'm a halfway clever guy, but if I look at something that's outside of my discipline, it takes me a long time to understand it. And I'm decent at reading, you know. Yeah, like I tell people all the time, I'm like, look, I know a lot about the things I know, but I don't know everything. You can't come to me with every question and expect me to be able to teach it to you. I'm like, I read the history books. I did not read the science books, but I did set my chemistry table on fire in high school. But that's a story for a different day. Well, it's just fascinating that the parents who, you know, um, could not figure out Common Core math all of a sudden overnight became experts on vaccines and, and, uh, and public health <laughs> mandates. Um, I, we're, we're pretty much out of time. Um, everybody check out Dr. C's podcast. It's called Office Hours with Dr. C. Uh, they've got new episodes every Tuesday, which I'm very jealous of. I'd love to have like a regular, <laughs> a regular schedule. Um, but uh, Gabe, thank you so much for coming on today. I uh, really appreciate your perspective. And, um, you know, please come on anytime. It's really good to see you. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun and it was great talking to y'all. And um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to level with you, Troy. You're less intimidating in this format uh, than <laughs> when you're on TikTok. I love hey, that's like the classroom thing with me. I'm like, everyone thinks I'm scary. I am not. We're just Why scary. do people keep saying that to me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, Next um, time, Gabe, though, we're going to talk about Kevin Smith's dogma because it's hard to uh, find and not a lot of people have seen it, but like, yeah. oh, 
to this veggie tales thing. That's a as, whole, that is a whole rabbit hole that we could do right there. As a as a practicing Catholic, that is a formative part of my journey. Same that, the funny <laughs> Jesus, right? It's required viewing for Catholics. Yeah. I swear it was pivotal, man. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. So thanks, folks. Yeah.